Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Men walked in with the uh, automatic rifles. They also had hand grenades with them. And they had put nails on the outside of the grenades. Wow. And they opened, they opened up fire with the automatic rifles. And they lobbed grenades into the congregation. Right, and joining us now, our guest is, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Charles Von Vick. Uh, is that correct? Did I say your name correctly? That, that's very close, David. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Charles Van Vick. Thank you. Okay, that's as close as I'm going to get. I'll spell it out for people because your website <laughs> is C-H-A-R-L-V-A-N-W-Y-K. Dot info and so that's correct it, it might be easier for people to find you if they look at the at the title of your books because that's pretty easy to remember shooting back was your first book you've now got a new book uh reloaded uh is it reloaded shooting back or um yes uh, reloaded and the subtitle is shooting back again okay so shooting back and then reloaded and then the subtitle shooting back again and let's talk about this because the subtitle to your first book Shooting Back was about the right and duty of self-defense. Spoiler alert, uh, he, after he went through this struggle, as I mentioned before, he played a key role in the St. James Massacre in terms of protecting about 1,000 lives. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about your concern about it as a Christian missionary. Tell people, uh, because you wrote this book long before we had any church shootings in the U.S., and now we've had several, I'm afraid. And, and so you were trying to warn Americans about what was coming. Uh, take us back to, um, uh, you know, before the St. James Massacre uh, and, and what you were thinking as a Christian, what you went through in the process. Yes, David, it was um, quite strange because I'd been in the military in South Africa. Uh, all uh, white men at the time during the apartheid days needed to do national service, and that included two years in the military. And I could understand theologically and biblically how um, a man could defend his homeland and defend his family uh, from that sort of perspective. But I really questioned the idea of uh, carrying a gun in civilian streets and, you know, supporting yourself uh, if somebody was trying to attack your family. Uh, strange enough as it is, uh, that was an issue for me. And let's talk about that because, you know, that really is the point of attack on the Second Amendment here in the United States. It's like, well, you know, the military can do it. 
uh, to defend the country and defend innocent lives because they've got the imprimatur of the government. But you as an individual shouldn't be allowed to do that. We see that all the time, even about the teachers in the schools. So that you were there where we are right now in this debate. And what did you decide about that? Yes, so, so I, I really struggled with this issue, and then I read an article by uh, Larry Pratt, who was the executive director at the time of Gun Owners of America, and he basically laid down a biblical foundation for Christian men arming themselves to protect their families, and as I said, in, in Civilian Street. So uh, I thought it was an excellent article, really changed my mind on these issues, and then very soon after that, I was driving my car near a town called Wellington, uh, near Cape Town, South Africa, and all of a sudden I saw burning tires in the street. And as I slowed down, the people started uh, pelting me with rocks and bricks uh, at wow. the car. Wow. And uh, I managed to do a U-turn and get away there as quickly as possible, drove to a police station to uh, tell them what had happened, to report the issue. Uh, but then I decided <laughs> straight after that incident that, uh, you know, I was unmarried at the time, but I thought I'm going to get a firearm now. And if anybody threatens to kill myself, all my friends and my family in the future, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to defend, uh, defend ourselves, uh, defend us with lethal force. Yeah. So that's the, very much how, how it panned out. Did the police say, uh, well, they were mostly peaceful, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah that's a, yeah i understand that there's this argument that you know i in fact i had somebody on a, on a previously on an interview in america saying to me we can trust our politicians so we can give firepower to to the state but uh but you know in africa you can't so i don't know how that's panning out i don't know how that's panning out for you yeah, I, I don't really trust the politicians to protect us. Of course, <laughs> even, even people who are well-intentioned and, and who would risk their life to save other people, you know, they're heroes, but there's not always a hero around, right? So you have to act in self-defense. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the challenges that you had uh, as a Christian and, and what Larry Pratt was saying in terms of convincing people, because I've had a lot of Christians who have pushed back and say, no, you know, I, I, I can't... Um, I can't do anything even in self-defense to harm somebody else. What was it that Larry Pratt said that convinced you? So Larry Pratt uh, quoted quite a, quite a lot of scripture. Um, I'll quote that too. Um, Exodus 22, verses 2 to 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, talking about a life-threatening situation, if you uh, take a person's life when they're threatening your life, it's dark, you can't see them, you don't know what they're doing in your house, uh, then there's no blood on your hands for that. Mm -hmm. But if it's broad daylight, you can see somebody's just stealing a loaf of bread, then uh, you don't take their life for that. Um, and then he also quoted um, Jesus Christ in Luke 22, saying, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak, and buy one. So Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples, telling them to purchase the greatest military weapon at their time. And, you know, some people argue that, um, you know, he, the apostle Peter pulled out his sword and he took off Malchus's ear, one of the soldiers of the high priest. 
And if you look at that scripture, we see that Jesus actually tells him to put it back in its place. He doesn't tell him to get rid of the sword because he had told him to buy swords. So uh, Larry did Larry did a really good job of taking one through these uh, ideas in scripture. There are many more, obviously, but, um, you know, just a, a very basic one. You shall not murder. You know, we not allowed to take a judicially innocent life. Mm-hmm. But straight after God gave that command, he sent out his people to go wipe out other nations. Um, and so the whole idea is that you, you, there are times when a Christian might need to kill, mm-hmm. but you don't take a judicially innocent life. In other words, we don't murder people. Right. Um, and so these are, these are ideas that uh, Larry was talking about, which I felt very refreshing, very encouraging, and it really changed my mind on this, on this whole issue. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I've often wondered if uh, Peter had an open or concealed carry permit from the Roman government for his sword. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, so some of the, uh, some uh, uh, theologians that have written about this, uh, you know, saying that the, <laughs> the disciples were young people, they were teenagers yeah. uh, carrying the finest weapon of their time. And apparently from what I could gather, it was actually legal for them to be doing it under Roman supervision or Roman control. Right. Uh, they weren't allowed to just have swords. So it seems like Jesus was doing something very disruptive at the time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the uh, Roman Empire was in many ways a lot freer than the American Empire. <laughs> so they, certainly, they certainly didn't have biometric surveillance at the very least. So, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how things have devolved and uh, centralized. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, even... Uh, beyond those, my opinion, even beyond those um, uh, excellent examples that you gave, I think it runs throughout the Bible, <clears throat> both Old and New Testament, that we are to defend innocent life. All right, God is defined as the defender of widows and um, you know, father to the fatherless and all the rest of the stuff. And that doesn't mean just helping them financially. That means literally defending people uh, when you need to do that. And um, you know, it, it speaks out constantly about injustice and, of course, you know, uh, uh, people who are swift to shed blood. But, it, you know, we have a, a right and a duty, I believe. I, that, that's the subtitle of your book, Shooting Back, A Right and a Duty of Self-Defense. What year did that book come out? Oh, uh, that's a difficult question. I think it's a good uh, 15 years ago already. So it's, it's quite a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty old already. But, David, I have to agree with you. You know, in First Timothy 5 verse 8, um, we can read, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yeah. And, and provision is obviously also the security. It's not just food. It's not just the clothing. You also need to provide for the security of your family. So, yes, the, the book's quite old already, and the so second book has come out, and Lord willing, I'm hoping to have a third book out uh, for the commemoration, the 30th. 30-year commemoration, which is happening on the 25th of July this year. Mm. So um, we'll see how that how that pans out. That's good. Yeah. yeah as we're talking about this, I also think about uh, Jesus. He says, um, if a thief is not going to enter in a home and start stealing stuff unless he ties up the strong man first. In other words, you're going to defend yes. uh, your family. Uh, certainly, he's just talking about theft. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, a, a physical, violent threat to people. And, and when you did this, and this is the key thing, uh, we had not had any shootings, I believe, in the U.S. Maybe there had been one. I don't know. But I, I, it wasn't a thing when your book came out. You were warning people. I remember first time I saw the book uh, was on WND's website. 
And uh, you were talking about that this is coming to America, and it now has come to America. We've seen, unfortunately, several incidences of this. And we've seen that these incidents only stop when there is somebody who shoots back. So let's talk about, after you work through some of these things and you convince yourself that you had both a right and a duty to protect innocent life from violence and aggression, uh, talk about what happened in the events of the St. James Massacre. When, when did that happen? Sure, David. That was on the 25th of July, 1993. So it's just almost 30 years ago that that happened. Mm. Uh, do you want me to give some detail about that right now? Yes. Yes. Let's go into okay, so, tell as much about it as you want. Kind of set it up, uh, what was happening all right. and everything. Great. So we were sitting in a church service in Cape Town, South Africa, when all of a sudden there was a noise at the front door of the church and a terrorist stepped into the church. And as soon as I saw them come in and I saw their rifles, I thought that a play was taking place in the church. Mm. Uh, I had a young girl that was working for me at the time in the insurance industry, and she was a youth leader at the church. And she told me they were going to do a play for the youth and they were going to have people dressed up as soldiers or as policemen, and they would come uh, take away the uh, church uh, youth leaders and accuse them of spreading the gospel when they weren't allowed to be doing that. Mm. So I had that in my mind, and these um, men walked in with their uh, automatic rifles. They also had hand grenades with them, and they had put nails on the outside of the grenades. Wow. And they opened, they opened up fire with their automatic rifles and they lobbed grenades into the congregation. So you could just imagine uh, everybody got down as low as they possibly could onto the floor, trying to hide behind the benches. And um, they were strangely enough, very, very quiet. Mm. And I realized only when the grenades were blowing up and the the rounds were hitting the wooden benches and splinters were flying up into the, into the air, I realized that this is not a show, it's not an act, it's not a play, uh, this is the real thing. And so I had a 38 Special Revolver, five-shot revolver with me. I was sitting fourth row from the back of the church. The church is... A, a very large auditorium could sit about one seat, about one and a half thousand people. There weren't that many that night. It was a cold winter's night in, in Cape Town um, in the middle of July, which is our winter time in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, I just uh, took my uh, my 38 Special, uh, took it out of the holster, which was in my on my ankle, and I knelt behind the benches. So it was very much like a cinema, the church. So it was very high at the back and low to a stage in the front. And I could kneel behind the bench and take two shots at the attackers um, at the front door of the church. I then realized that I was far too far away from them. Uh, anybody that's listening or watching might know that the 38 Special uh, snub nose revolvers, not for shooting across uh, a thousand people when you're in the fourth row from the back of an auditorium. <laughs> so, 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 David, I had to get out on my hands and knees and I, I leopard crawl. We call it leopard crawl. I don't know what you call it in America, but you're on all fours and you get down as low as possible. Mm -hmm. And I, I leopard crawl to the side to the aisle. And uh, I ran out the back door of the church, uh, and the idea was to come in behind the attackers and shoot them in the back at close range uh, to stop the, the carnage. Mm -hmm. And as I ran down the back stairs and I was about to round the corner, I realized uh, then that they'd already left the church. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So what I didn't know then was that one of my rounds had hit one of the attackers inside the church, and so they ran back to their getaway car. So I came around the corner, I saw them, and I jumped back behind the corner because one of them was standing at the back door of the getaway car, and he had his rifle on his hip looking at the door they had come out from. So he had been, one of them had been hit, they ran out, they thought that maybe I'd become running after them through that door, and he would have loaded his rifle and just blown me away. Mm. Uh, but I was behind him. So I took another three shots uh, from stepping out from behind the wall and they jumped in the vehicle and drove off. And what came, what came out afterwards at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a, a government um, a commission to look into terrorism and, and what have you around South Africa, uh, somebody came and parked them in, apparently. A random person came and parked in front of them, and they couldn't get out of the parking lot in their getaway car. So they took a couple of sh shots <laughs> at this random person and threw, threw what we call a petrol bomb at them, which is uh, <laughs> petrol or gas inside a bottle, which you light right. uh, with a rag in it, and you, you throw it. And this thing exploded, and this car drove off as quick as possible. So wow. you know, all these strange stories start coming out later. Wow. But, somebody's but just was, driving around was, their car with what we call a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> and they threw that at them. Or, yeah, yes, that's right. That's what, yeah, that, that's it. Imagine <laughs> that. You, you park outside a church, the next thing somebody starts shooting at you and throws a Molotov cocktail at your car. <laughs> anyway, so they, they drove off very quickly. Now, but, that happened uh, in, in these. Let, let's say that happened in 1993. And then five years right. later, you know, the communists take over and. Um, in order to, because there's a lot of atrocities going back and forth on both sides, and so to to try to shut everything down, I guess, or whatever, however you want to interpret these uh, committees, they had these Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where they would offer people amnesty for any crimes that they had done if they would talk about it from their perspective. And that's when you found out uh, a lot of the stuff that was happening, That some of it that you mentioned. I mean, what all did they say in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission? What, what was their motive in doing this? Uh, they had various motives. Uh, they argued mostly that they were under command and they were just obeying orders. Uh, but one of the young men uh, argued that the white people that came to Africa stole all the land, and so he didn't have a problem with uh, killing them in churches uh, because they came with their Bible. And that's one of the stories that we hear in Africa. Um, you know, the, the white man arrived with his Bible and he gave Bibles to the local Africans and he, he, he stole their land while he gave them the Bible. So this is a, a, an old uh, story that's that uh, has been going around um, in South Africa and probably other parts of Africa as well. Mm -hmm. So um, he, he was justified uh, in his own mind Reparations. They, they admitted what we would call here reparations. That's, right. that's what yeah, they're trying to build up now yes. with, uh, you know, the 20, uh, the 1619 project and all the rest of the stuff is a sense of entitlement, a sense that you are okay to take vengeance on people because of this injustice that happened uh, centuries ago 
Uh, and uh, so fine. now you can take it out on people today. That's really what they're trying to build up here. Uh, so that that's another element of this that we really haven't seen that much. We've seen a little bit of this. We just had a, a lady decide that she was going to steal something like $1,000 worth of food. And uh, she defiantly said, this is my reparation. Uh, it didn't go down too well for her. <laughs> but the day, the day oh, is can coming. Imagine. Yeah, the day is coming when uh, th there's going to be violence and they're going to feel completely justified in doing it because the government and the schools have been telling them this line for a very long time. And so that's what one of them said. What did some of the others say? Uh, they, uh, well, they were arguing that they were under, they didn't even know it was going to be a church, that they were under commanders who commanded them and they just carried out uh, and did what they were told. So some of them argued right up to the point of until they arrived at the church, they didn't even know it was a church that they were going to attack. Uh, never mind the fact that the church was multiracial. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there were these sorts of arguments that admitted to the fact that they they murdered um, the people which they did. There were eleven murdered and over fifty that were injured, mm -hmm. and and some some struggled with it. Um, I know the the one chap that I actually hit with one of my rounds. He told me that he apologized uh, to some of the survivors afterwards, and um, uh, that took place in a, in a cl behind closed doors. Hmm. And as he said to me, you know, he said, "This is politics. So, you know, you play one game uh, in, my, in front of people or the cameras, and then something else happens behind closed doors." So I wasn't involved in that, but uh, that's apparently uh, what happened. But mm -hmm. one of the other, or a couple of the other interesting things that happened uh, in the church was there was one young man with the name of Gerard Harker. Uh, he was 21 at the time, and he fell on top of a hand grenade and took a full body blow to himself mm. uh, to protect the people around him. And unfortunately, his younger brother, 13-year-old younger brother, also died um, in the attack. Wow. And then there was another youngster, 17-year-old boy, Richard O'Kill, who had two young girls, uh, Lisa and Bonnie. I'm actually friends with Lisa. And uh, they uh, all went down onto the ground. And uh, Bonnie, who was so surprised, she sat up or stood up to see what was going on uh, with the whole attack. And she didn't, uh, she was so shocked, she didn't know what to do with herself. So Richard went up on his haunches and he pulled her down. And as he pulled uh, young Bonnie down onto the ground, a bullet hit him in the back of the head mm. while he was trying trying to save her life. Wow. And we also had a ministry to Russian sailors at the time. And uh, one of them with the name of Dmitry Makagon was 23. He was traveling around the Cape on a, uh, on a large uh, ocean liner ship, for want of a better word. And the ministry uh, leaders at our church would fetch these Russian soldiers and bring them through to come and hear the gospel being preached. And so a bunch of them were in our church that evening. And one of them, Dimitri, had a hand grenade land on his lap and it blew off both his legs and one arm. Wow. Um, and so. But he survived. Uh, the church, he survived. He survived wow. that. And uh, the church brought his. Um, fiance over from Russia, and they actually ended with a fairy tale story by getting married in that church later. So wow. uh, there's some really interesting things that happened under those circumstances. Now, were you a, a member of that church, or were you just kind of visiting that church? Um, uh, did you know these people, or you, or were you just visiting that church? No, I was. Uh, I wasn't a member, as in signed up member, but I went to all the Sunday evening services. So. Uh, 
I was uh, an attendee, a regular attendee, let's say that. I only joined as a member later, the, the denomination. They said at the time, I believe, that um, they thought that there were multiple people shooting at them, and, and didn't they pick that church because they thought that it would be a soft target? That's correct. In fact, the leader, the commander of the attackers, um, said, said on a, and a television interview uh, with me, uh, or no, sorry, it was a, a newspaper interview, and he said, this was a terrorist attack in the true sense of what terrorism is about. It was to instill fear in the whites in South Africa. And so he was very clear about it. And then he went further. He introduced me to a friend of his at Parliament. And he said, this is Charles van Beek, who defended the people at the St. James Church massacre. And there we thought the church was a gun-free zone. But boy, <laughs> did, did he have a surprise for us. So, uh, I mean... To say it, uh, you know, just straight from the horse's mouth, he didn't mince his words. He didn't try to pretend uh, it was something that it wasn't. He was very open about it. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, I, when I look at this, um, it makes me think of uh, David and Goliath. Uh, you know, he didn't have a sword. He had uh, a slingshot with some stones. He had uh, five of them. I think was, uh, <laughs> Goliath had some brothers there. God can do amazing <laughs> things. And uh, certainly when we look at this, and the way that God used you, you can see God's providence and care for a lot of people. I know a lot of people died. It was 11 people who were killed, 58 That's who right. were wounded, uh, mm -hmm. but it could have been uh, many, many more. And uh, God used you and uh, confounded them with just the things that you were ordinarily doing. You know, well, I can't hit them from here, even though you had. And you crawl around the side and take some more shots. They think they're under fire from multiple people. Uh, it truly is amazing to see how uh, God used you to protect those people. Yeah, it was actually a, a real honor because, um, you know, under the circumstances, you know, I had one uh, interviewer once asked me, were you scared? I said, of, of course I was scared. So he <laughs> said, well, he said, well, I would have piddled in the pew. But, uh, the, you know, the, the idea is that when you have these circumstances, you, uh, I had been trained in the defense force, um, for the two years that I spoke about earlier. So we've been trained how to deal with uh, chaos around us, grenades going off, uh, lots of gun noise. And so I didn't, I don't want to say, um, you know, once tr trained to keep your cool, to be able to think clearly under those circumstances and to react appropriately. So by God's grace, uh, I'd forced to be <laughs> trained in that, in that banner. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you just did what your, your muscle memory and uh, was trained to do. Well, you know, it was uh, John Wayne who said, uh, you know, courage is being scared, but saddling up anyway, you know, and that's, and that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's basically what you did. That, 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 that's right. You know, if you don't, if you're not scared, you don't really have good situational awareness about what's going on. Uh, so <laughs> scared is, yes. is one thing, but, you know, having the courage to take it on is another thing instead of just hiding. And uh, well, we've, some seen, of the... we've seen that. I was just going to say, we've seen that even with some police who have shown up, unfortunately, some of these school shootings, like. Uvalde, Texas, uh, they showed up, this massive number of police, and they all were there with their stuff. They refused to go in and do anything about it. Finally, uh, some officers from, um, I can't remember what it was, is it Border Patrol or something like that? Uh, SWAT team guys showed up. But, I mean, they were there for so long doing nothing uh, that you had parents who heard about it who went to the school and went into the school and got their kids out uh, while this shooter hostage situation was still there. 
And uh, so there was plenty of time for them to do something about it, but they didn't do it. Uh, so it's not just sometimes a, a response time for people to get there, but it's whether or not they're going to put their life at risk to try to protect other people. And that is a courageous thing to do. And that, that is something that you did. So what was your message in general? T- tell us a little bit about that, uh, your first book, and, and then we'll talk about um, Reloaded. Uh, shooting back, what did you want to get across to people? Was it really about uh, the, the fact they had a right and a duty or, you know, how to do it, uh, the necessity to do it? What, what was your core reason for writing that book? The, the book was written, David, to Christian men. Uh, so the idea was to give them uh, the biblical um, theological basis to own a firearm. And a firearm is just an instrument. So the, the idea is actually to defend the family, whether you're going to use a baseball bat or a firearm is really irrelevant. The issue is, are you going to protect your family or not? So I want you to give Christian men a biblical basis to protect their families and to take it further and say to them, this is not just a right, uh, you know, a, a God-given right, but this is something you have to do. Mm-hmm. You you have to protect your family. You actually don't have a choice as a godly man. Mm-hmm. So it's a right, but you also have a duty. Um, a a God-given duty to provide for your family, and that includes the security of your family. And uh, we've uh, seen all over Africa, gun-free zones are the most horrendous places. We've seen 700,000 people murdered in Rwanda that was a gun-free zone. Uh, I've done mission work, or I do mission work in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which wasn't democratic or republic, although things are getting (laughs) much better now. But, uh, you know, I've had my... My colleagues over there, they've had colleagues, pastors that have been buried alive by rebel soldiers. Wow. And and I said to them, why didn't you, why didn't the deacons pull out their firearms and say to the rebels, go ahead, make our day? And he said, well, we were completely disarmed. I said, well, who disarmed you? Was there a law passed in parliament? He said, no, it doesn't work like that in, in the Congo. Um, the president just sends the army in and they just go door to door and they just disarm everybody. That's the way it's done. Wow. And I said to him, you know, I I showed him that if there were godly Christian men around with firearms, they could have stopped the the pastor from being buried alive by the soldiers. And the the accusation against the pastor by the, um, the rebel soldiers was that the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the church, was so powerful that it was changing the the war in a negative direction against them. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it, of course. Right now, open a new CQ checking account and we'll give you $250 to spend however you like. Upgrade those headphones, splurge on concert tickets, or maybe upgrade to ad-free streaming. The choice is yours. And extra cash isn't all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. All with CQ. Visit CQMD.org today. That's S-E-C-U-M-D.org today.
Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been accused of changing a war by my prayers. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the, these guys are really hardcore prayer warriors. And the the way the soldiers want to deal with them was to kill them and bury them alive. That's a pretty good commendation. I've had I've heard some really amazing stories in uh, third world countries like that of uh, things that have happened when people are praying. Uh, but that is a pretty good commendation. A horrible way to die, certainly. But um, uh, it is. And, of course, this is in 1993. Earlier today I was talking about Waco. And, you know, it was uh, three months after Waco had happened. And everybody was still kicking that stuff around. So the St. James Church Massacre really didn't get that much attention here in America at the time. Because, you know, we were looking at uh, the aftermath of, of what happened with Waco uh, just a couple of months earlier. Uh, tell us a little bit, where are you now? Are you in still in South Africa? Are you in the U.S.? Where, where do you live now? Yes, I'm, I'm in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, so I still live here. My family's been here since the late 1600s, so we born and bred Africans mm -hmm. and uh, probably going to stay here for a very long time uh, till, the Lord, till the Lord takes me home, as they say. Yeah. Tell, tell us what it's like now. Uh, what has it been like? Because I know there's a lot of issues with the taking the farmers uh, land, the white farmers, and uh, a lot of concern about that. I've talked to some people uh, several times in the past who are living there, uh, incredible amount of violence being done to white farmers. So what is it now that they've had the truth and reconciliation and everything is just all, uh, you know, flowers and roses for everybody, right? Well, or is it? <laughs> yep. No, well, that that is uh, not as it is. It's uh, absolutely chaotic here, David. There's pandemonium, pandemonium, things are falling to pieces. Uh, but I just want to add quickly about uh, not being an American, not visiting. Uh, unfortunately, your government is protecting you still in America, not allowing us who are unvaccinated to, to visit yet. I know. So even all the <laughs> so, well, no international guests are allowed to visit America. So you've been really very well protected. You're very well protected from the rest of us in in Africa. It's, it's amazing. I talked about this uh, last week when, you know, they theoretically took off this emergency order. It's like, okay, so then can uh, the people in the UK were saying, so now can we, uh, people, those of us who are unvaccinated, can we now go to America? It's like, no. Uh, no, you can't. There, there's no other developed country that is doing this. It's a lot of uh, third world tin pot dictators who are doing this. But again, uh, many of us mm. who look at Biden see him as fitting into that mold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> so. well, I often say to people um, in the rest of Africa, you know, uh, we in South Africa are following you. We will look like you very soon. Yeah. So maybe in America, you're going to be looking like South Africa soon. But let me give you just a bit of background to your, to your question. Um, we've, we've been plagued with just loads and loads of crises since, the, since uh, Nelson Mandela's communist uh cadres have taken over the country. Mm -hmm. We we have the murder of the pre-born, which Nelson Mandela introduced into South Africa. Mm. We have massive, massive unemployment, uh, up to 50 and 60% in certain age groups. Uh, the poverty is devastating. Uh, we have insufficient electricity capacity in our country. In fact, in the next 30 minutes, our electricity will be going off in the area we're in at the moment, in this church building. Oh, wow. um, we have contaminated water supplies, uh, sewer failures are happening, disastrous public hospitals. We have rampant crime, as you've just mentioned. So there's, there's literally, uh, the, the, the society is literally uh, crumbling around us. Mm. And the Mandela government that took over, they, they didn't just fail to maintain what they inherited. They actually caused major regression. 
And so we're going backwards in South Africa. Our real GDP has been shrinking uh, since 2014. And we about 10% poorer than we were in 2014 right now. Uh, 18 million people, one third of our population is living below the poverty line. Uh, malnutrition is common. We plagued with the crime, looting, with vandalism, and it's chaotic out there. In mm. fact, uh, two of my children have just uh, flown off to Europe to to go work there, and we're ecstatic about it. It's praise the Lord they've got jobs, and second of all, they're living in a society where they don't have to be concerned about um, leaving their home. Yeah. And even at our home, my one son went running uh, on a field one day, and he was attacked there. We've had a grocery store that's been attacked on the road. I've had an elderly neighbor who saw burglars in our house and they tried to run her over with their getaway car. Another neighbor was murdered. I can carry on and on. Um, another one was stabbed in the head. Uh, these are right in my area. I'm talking about in my small little suburb that I live in of about 300 houses. Yeah. So... Um, and it's even this you know, pandemonium. The, the farmers, you know, they, they have a campaign of terrorism to try to drive them off of the farms, and they're even more isolated than you are in the suburbs. And I've just heard horrific stories That's right. about what is happening to the farmers. Yeah, Dave, yeah you're 100%, Dave. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about the farmers. The, the main challenge with the farm murders is the severity of the torture that takes place mm. that accompanies these attacks. And it is horrendous. I'm talking about burning their victims with blow torches, using clothing irons and putting it on their bodies and burning women's breasts with clothing irons, mm. uh, pouring boiling kettle water onto people, onto their bodies, slitting their throats, uh, drilling a hole through their skulls with an electric drill, wow. uh, raping wives, and the men have to uh, sit and they're forced to watch while the wives get raped. It is, it is pandemonium, uh, what's going on here. It is absolutely... Uh, criminal. I mean, I mean this, and and then many of these people get off scot free because the police system is in such shambles uh, and such chaos that um, most of the people walk free. They don't even get caught, and uh, no justice is meted out. And of course, the you know, even though apartheid was covered, uh, you know, from front cover to back cover by the press all the time before Nelson, Nelson Mandela got in, um, after this beloved Marxist took over and these things started happening, complete silence here in America about all of this stuff that is happening. I'm absolutely amazed and appalled whenever I talk to somebody from South Africa and we talk about uh, how society has uh, been deliberately destroyed there. Uh, and, and we see a little bit of, ev uh, you know, uh, kind of the leading edge of this in a lot of the big democratically controlled cities with Soros-appointed uh, district attorneys where there is no punishment for people. They're encouraged in a sense to get violent, but that's just the, the, the very, very beginning of this. You are living through, uh, what if we don't stop this in the big cities will become commonplace here in the U S and what I think that they really want to do in terms of reparations. I think that's where, uh, they want to take all this stuff. You said, uh, abortion, uh, as we call it, uh, the, you know, the murder of uh, children, uh, that was made legal. It was uh, illegal uh, before the Marxists took over? Well, they had it in the special cases, but mm -hmm. it's not just the Marxists. It's Nelson Mandela uh, personally forced this through Parliament. Mm. So we, do, we don't have a democratic system in the sense of Western democracy the way you think about it. Uh, we elect uh, a party, and uh, on the percentage of the vote that they get, that party gets that percentage of seats in Parliament. And the party leaders appoint people to sit in those seats. 
Mm. So if any of their um, any of the people that they've appointed as members of parliament in their seat disagree with a party or cause any trouble, they get thrown out of their seat and they get uh, replaced by somebody else. Wow. So. Um, so what uh, Mandela did was he called all his parliamentarians to a meeting and said to them, you will all vote for abortion. Wow. And, uh, you know, try not to do it and we'll see what happens because yeah. he controlled the seats. Yeah. And so apparently the Catholics in the party didn't go to parliament on that day and they were fined for not being there, but they didn't lose their seats. Yeah. Uh, and the rest uh, followed, they towed the line. They were, they did what they were told. They didn't want to lose all the money they were making. I mean, the country's poor, everything's going down the drain and they're getting fat salaries and living it up and uh, driving nice cars and got government housing with mm -hmm. electricity that works. So yeah, very, very um, difficult circumstances uh, for us with that kind of parliamentary system, but uh, that's the way it stands at the moment. You know, it is, um, uh, it, it, to give you an idea of just how ignorant America is about what is happening there, uh, when you had the indictment of Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a big Trump supporter and Republican, goes to uh, New York, and in an interview she says she compares him to Nelson Mandela. And I thought, this, oh, is, this is a conservative Republican who is absolutely clueless about what she's talking about. She might as well compare him to Che Guevara or something, right? Or perhaps uh, Che Guevara might have been able to do the things that Nelson Mandela did, but he is celebrated as a hero by people outside of South Africa on both the left and the right. And it is profoundly ignorant uh, for uh, these, these people to be held up that way. Uh, you also created um, a, uh, a civilian gun rights group as well, didn't you? Yes, I was involved. Uh, yes, I was involved with the group um, that we established called Gun Owners of South Africa, and um, they are running full steam ahead. I've got uh, spent much more time in my ministry traveling to different countries: South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Congo, Cameroon, doing mission work. So I was part of the instigators to get the organization up and running, and we've got some really, really good people that are running it at the moment, and they're doing an absolutely wonderful job to, uh, let's call it, to to preserve our privilege in South Africa to own a firearm. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a right according to our constitution. So um, okay. uh, even although it's a God-given right, our constitution seems to think they, or the constitution creators think they could override God on this matter. Well, even though ours is recognized in the Declaration of Independence as a God-given right, and also in the Second Amendment, we have politicians who uh, believe that it is a privilege that should be taken away on every occasion. And those are people in both parties who believe that. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the uh, second book, uh, Reloaded. And didn't that just come out recently? Yes, uh, it's actually a few years old already, but uh, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a background to that. Uh, I was at a course that we were running, uh, a Christian mission course, and I had to go into town away from the, the place we were staying at, to go and prepare a radio show. And I had a former terrorist. In fact, he was a former unit commander of the group that attacked our church in 1993 at the St. James Massacre. Mm. And he had come to faith in Christ. And he said to me, please, can you drop me off in Kaya which is a very large, uh, we, we call it a, a black township at the time. Um, a very, very large area of grouping of people. There's probably one and a half million to two million people staying in the area. Wow. And he asked if I could drop him off there. And I said, sure, jump in the car. I'll, I'll go drop you off, no problem. And as I dropped him off in Kailitsha, 
um, I got out of the vehicle as a pickup and we have like a canopy, a fiberglass canopy that you build over the back of your pickup. And so he was sitting in, in the flat bed of that with a canopy over and he was shouting to me as I did a U-turn uh, telling me where I need to park. So I parked the car to drop him off and I got out of the car to open up the canopy so that he could get out and grab his bags. And the next thing there were two people standing behind me, I could sense them. And as I turned around, uh, I saw these two characters, they both had guns. The one wasn't, um, I couldn't see his, his firearm at the time. And the other one had his gun in his hand and he wasn't pointing it directly at me. It was just off uh, to the slightly to the side of me. And he said, I want your gun, I want your cell phone and I want your wallet. Uh, very specific about what he wanted. And could he see, uh, your, gun? I, could he see your gun? No, 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 my gun had it, right? Was, he assumed. So it, it looked like I'd been taken into a difficult situation there by the person in the back of the vehicle. And these people seemed to have been waiting there for me. Hmm. So uh, it appeared to be an ambush. So I, uh, I lied to him. I said I had no gun. And I handed over my wallet and my cell phone. And they body searched me. I kid you not, David. They body searched me and they didn't go down low enough to see my firearm in my ankle holster. Wow. And so they were convinced that either I or my passenger was armed. And so after body searching me multiple times, they left me and they went to harass my uh, elderly um, person that was with me in the car. He was sitting alone in the car at the time while I was out in the front of the single cab, uh, Bucky, we call it a pickup. And they started bothering him and they were body searching him and they asked for his phone. He said, I don't have one. They asked for cash. He said, I don't have any. I'm going to do a radio show now. I'm not carrying cash and money and things with me. They said, give us your gun. He said, I don't have a gun. And so these two attackers, both with their guns in their hands now, uh, were looking in the car, opening up the, the cabinets in the car, searching everywhere, body searching him. And this gave me time to then pull out my, uh, my uh, gun and i went below the car window so that he couldn't see me and i went to the front of the car and i shouted at them to distract them from bothering my my elderly passenger and i opened up fire at them mm. and they they were really good they were running in a zigzag fashion uh, <laughs> to get away from me so they they were well trained they, they knew exactly what they were doing but to my surprise um this is a, a shanty town where, where i dropped them off and the next thing, they had had a sentry standing around amongst the, the metal housing there, and he opened up fire at me. So wow. they had a sentry protecting them. So this was a fully organized uh, crime that was taking place right over there. So uh, I had to duck and, and avoid bullets that were coming straight from me from a distance between the housing, the metal the little metal housing there and uh, jumped in the vehicle and we drove off and went to police station to to report the the incident so th that's why the second book is called uh, reloaded <laughs> and then shoot, shooting back again it's not the first time this is uh it happened again so that, that's the background to the the writing of the second book Wow. And you said you thought that maybe it was an ambush. The elderly passenger you had there, uh, who is now a Christian, he, he wasn't a part of that, was he? Or do you think, perhaps? No, not at all. My pa uh, the Not the elderly passenger that was with me that they were body searching, not him. Uh, yeah. only, the only the person in the flatbed at the back. So, uh, okay. um, 
Yeah. So the person who asked me to please drop him off in the area, he's the one that. Uh, Oh, that. I got you. But there were two passengers. Yeah. I didn't catch that. So there's a your yeah. Sorry, one in the with you and one in the back. That's that, that. The guy in the back was the one that was. Uh, that's right. He's the one shouting, telling me where to park and that sort of thing. Okay. So uh, that's what happened there. But one of the interesting stories, if if you don't mind, I'd just like to tell you one of the quick stories about a farm attack. Yeah. Um, that I meant that I mentioned in my book. It's actually. Uh, uh, a lady in South Africa called Silke Kaiser, she mentions this in her book about farm murders. She's a polygraphist. And so she goes to the farms and interviews the farm laborers and that after a farm murder or a farm attack has taken place. But she tells the story of a man with the name of John, a farmer, him and his wife living on a farm alone. He gets up three o'clock in the morning to attend his chickens every morning. And he takes two staff members with him in to go uh, deal with the chickens in the morning. He doesn't carry his gun in the morning. He thought if anybody wants to steal chickens or eggs, they can take it. He's not going to kill somebody over a chicken or an egg. Mm -hmm. So off they go into the chicken coops. And the next thing, him and his two staff members are costed by four gunmen. They take the two farm workers and they tie them up. And two of the attackers remain there with the two victims, and the other two take John into the farmhouse, into the kitchen, and they tell John to call his wife, Elise. So he shouts her name. She's still busy sleeping in bed, and he wakes her up. And they're an Afrikaans-speaking farming couple, but he used an English word. He called her lovey. And what people, the everybody didn't know was that uh, lovey was a pre-agreed password for mm. alerting their spouse to there being trouble on the farm. Mm. So here the two bad guys are with a farmer in the middle. They're both on his side. They're both standing with guns and they step into the passage uh, and stand by what we call in South Africa, the rape gate. So many of us have security gates inside our homes, not just outside, inside our homes wow. that closes off our bedrooms from the rest of the house. In other words, if people break into our lounge and they steal our TV, they can take it at night, but we don't want them to come into our bedrooms and accost our family. Mm -hmm. So he, he and these, uh, these criminals were standing by the rape gate and uh, Lovey, Elise, um, comes out of the bedroom. She's armed and they were expecting her to give in straight away when they saw when she would see the guns being pointed at her husband. But what they didn't know that Elise was an expert shot. She had grown <laughs> up with guns. She had grown up with guns. And not just that, she'd uh, worked for a shooting range for 15 years. She trained other people how to shoot. Wow. <laughs> so she emerges from the bedroom with this uh, uh, carrying a loaded firearm. She takes a shot at the first perpetrator and hits him twice in the chest. Um, both bullets just narrowly miss his heart. Then she moved the gun slightly to the right and she shot the second thug in the head and killed him instantly. Wow. So the first thug tried to run out, trying to breathe. Um, his lungs were damaged by the bullets. He got out of the door and they found his corpse later under a bush outside. So um, the one attacker had already committed two other farm attacks. He hadn't murdered anybody yet, but he's his speciality was torturing his victims. Mm. And so um, they obviously cleaned up uh, that evening and the other two accomplices that had held the farm workers 
um, down, they fled the scene uh, very cleverly. So th this is one of the attacks that didn't work out for the bad guys. And, and praise God that these were not pacifist Christian farmers mm -hmm. who believed that they, uh, you know, that they would make the the environment safer for the bad guys to operate. And, and praise God that Elise was, was ready and armed and that she could shoot straight. Yes. Well, that is an amazing story. What is the, you know, you're there in South Africa. You said you're always, you're going to be there the rest of your life. What is, uh, I understand because uh, I've talked to other people who said, nope, we're staying, we're not leaving. And, uh, but what, what is the hope that you have? How, how do you see this happening? I mean, are you in a, mutual community of self-defense and you know that you're under siege by this large majority is there ever you know is there a hope or a plan that you're somehow going to restore some kind of a, an ordered republic there and a, a rational government that's going to keep uh, peace and order what is what is it that you see in the future there Yes, I, I believe strongly in that the, the gospel of the kingdom of God is what changes hearts and minds of people. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be a Christian missionary. Mm. So uh, I've I've seen that happen in nations. I've seen people that have come to faith in Christ. They've submitted uh, not just their personal lives. It's affected their family lives. It's affected their churches. It's affected, affected their businesses. And it's affected their countries. And we've seen nations changing because of people turning to God and obeying his word and his law. And uh, I believe that uh, that will happen in the future. Uh, maybe not, uh, maybe in the next generation, maybe I won't see it, but there's a scripture in the Bible that says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I think we're fighting a winning battle. We're not going to give up. We're going to carry on. And if only if the only thing I do is be a, a splinter in the fingers of the bad guys, then I'm happy to carry on doing that as we preach the gospel and disciple the nations. That's a great witness. And, and you know, it, it is it is great to hear that you you have uh, such confidence, and it is well placed confidence in the power of the gospel to not just change individual lives, but to completely reorder society. And we have seen Amen. that throughout history. And so it is is so good to hear somebody who is living their faith and knows that uh, they have the only power that is going to be there to transform society. That's great to hear. I interviewed yes. someone who was um, is now doing the work here in America, and it was um, it was in Zimbabwe uh, where there was a farmer who um, uh, came up with a. He said, you know, there was three different ways that people could do it. They could run away. Uh, they could fight, and said so the people who fought died for the most part. You know, trying to resist the takeover of the of the Marxists in Zimbabwe. He said, uh, though he lost his farm, he taught them how to farm, and as part of that, uh, he used that as an opportunity to give them the gospel and to change lives in the community. And what you're doing is exactly the same thing, and it is. Are we sorry? Uh, we're busy building a mission base in Zimbabwe right now mm. uh, in an area called Gwai River. It is very difficult. The people are really poor. They're struggling for their lives. And Zimbabwe is uh, moving towards an election this year. And so things get really dangerous now. So if American listeners can please pray for Zimbabwe, we'd really appreciate that. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, do you have a missionary uh, site that you'd like to tell people about? Um, yes, uh, my uh, website, uh, or shall I say my blog you can get to, is shootingbackbook.com. Okay. Shootingbackbook.com. You'll get to my blog there, and you can uh, 
purchase the books from there and that sort of thing. Good. And then uh, as you spelled out my name earlier, it's a bit complicated, but you're well to find your way around uh, if you get my name at the blog. Okay, good. So it is shootingbackbook.com. Is that correct? That's correct. That's okay. correct, David. Thank you. All right. And I'll put that in the, uh, the, the interview there. I'll have a link to that. That's a lot easier than your name is for uh, people. To <laughs> uh, I That's was somehow right. able to find you on that website. Uh, kind of, it had been years since we had talked. And uh, of course, I guess people can find your book on Amazon, but it'd be better to go directly to That's you right. because Amazon takes a big uh, kick and we don't like the things that Amazon does with all the money that they do is a key yeah. thing about that. So uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think they're going to be taken to Amazon anyway through my site. <laughs> okay. All right. So shootingbackbook.com uh, will take you there. And uh, again, uh, the, the missionary group, is there a, a website that you want to tell people about with that? Yeah, they'll, they'll get uh, to my mission work also from the same site. So it's okay. charlvanwick.info, uh, not pronounced that way, but the way it's spelled, charlvanwick.info, and then shootingback.com, and they'll be able to find my ministry and about my books on those sites. Well, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. It truly is amazing uh, where God has put you and the way that he is using you, and uh, you are an example to so many people, and also a warning a harbinger to what may be coming to this country if we're going to allow the radical Marxists to use race as a weapon. We know that in America, uh, this has been the tactic that they have found more effective. Uh, it was Bill Ayers and the Weather Underground who said at the very beginning when they were trying to create a Marxist communist revolution here in America, and they were bombing buildings and doing other things like that, they realized that it wasn't going to happen on uh, by dividing people economically into different economic classes in America, but it, they could do it by dividing people racially. And so they stopped bombing buildings and they went into education. And now the white skin privilege that they were setting there has now become one of the fundamental things. But it is also um, everything that we see happening throughout the educational system. It is a plan to take everything down. It is great always again uh, to talk to you, uh, Charles, and, and thank you so much for uh, coming on and telling us about that again the book is shoot you'll find the website with the book links to the book as well as to the missions there if you want to help them in zimbabwe shootingbackbook.com and uh, i know that you're going to have a big you've already had a big impact on a lot of people's lives uh lives david thank saved, you very much and uh, eternal uh things are going to happen as well thank you so much Rob. thank david, you david it's been a privilege being on your show keep up the good work and thank you very much for having me thank you thank you all right, folks, that is, um, that is the show for today. Uh, that is uh, quite, quite a testimony, quite a life that uh, Cheryl has having, and, and it is uh, an inspiration to us as well as a warning to us that we have both a right and a duty to protect ourselves and innocent people. Thank you for listening. David Knight Show is a critical thinking super spreader. If you've been exposed to logic by listening to the David Knight Show, please do your part and try not to spread it. Financial support or simply telling others about the show causes this dangerous information to spread farther. People have to trust me. I mean, trust the science. Wear your mask.
take your vaccine. Don't ask questions. Using free speech to free minds. It's the David Knight Show.